And before we jump into our passage this morning, uh, I just wanted to remind you what we mentioned earlier this morning. We are going to have a prayer night right here at Southwood on Tuesday. I would love to have you join us as we lift up the third campus to the Lord, as we lift up to Him everything that's needed to launch that campus, uh, hopefully this coming summer. So right here, foyer at Southwood uh, on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Love to have you. All right, this morning we're looking at accountability in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Really relevant topic. I don't know if you caught the news a few weeks ago. A Christian organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship was kicked off the campus of Vanderbilt University and the Cal State schools. They were kicked off campus. They were delisted as a student organization because they had the audacity to require that anyone who was in leadership with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship would affirm basic Christian doctrine and live a basically moral life. And the universities, Vanderbilt and Cal State, found that unacceptable. They, they kicked off InterVarsity because they, they viewed InterVarsity as having crossed a line. As one of the InterVarsity leaders puts it, Tish Warren, she says, that line was drawn by two issues, creedal belief and sexual expression. If religious groups required set truths or limited sexual autonomy, they were bad. Not just wrong, but evil, narrow-minded, and too dangerous to be tolerated on campus. So they kicked them off. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's going to happen a lot more, even here at A&M, because we live in a society that assumes that personal belief and private behavior is no one else's business, that personal belief and private behavior is up to you, and no one can tell you how to think, how to believe, how to act. And so if you are an atheist who doesn't believe in God at all, and yet for some reason you want to run for leadership in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, you should be able to. Because no one can tell you what to think or what to believe. And if you are getting drunk every weekend and sleeping around and yet you want for some reason to run for office at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, you should be able to because no one can tell you how to behave in private. That is what our world assumes, that personal belief and private behavior is no one else's business. That belief, that idea was perfectly encapsulated by none other than Rihanna in her 2012 album, Unapologetic. She sings, you'll always be mine, sing it to the world, always be my boy, always be your girl. Nobody's business, ain't nobody's business, ain't nobody's business but mine and my baby. What's she saying? That what I do in my private life, what I do in my bedroom, it is no one else's business. No one has the right to tell me how I should think, what I should believe, what I should say, what I should do. We live in a country that assumes that personal belief and private behavior is no one else's business. But is that true? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at a new section of the book today as Paul begins to address specific sins that were going on in the church in Corinth that made them look like the world around them. So they were called upstream to follow Jesus in righteousness and holiness. They were doing a poor job of it. And so Paul calls them out for specific sins. And we get the first two sins this morning that Paul is going to address for the church in Corinth. Two sins right there at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. It's two sins 
that Paul addresses. Two sins. The first one is the man's sin. Paul calls out the man for uh, unrepentant incest. Now, why does he call out the man and not the woman? Probably because the woman was not a believer. Paul only calls out the man because he's claiming to be a Christian. He's part of the church. As Paul will say later in the chapter, we have no business judging those who are outside the church, only those who are in. So Paul calls out this Christian man who is living in unrepentant incest. It's the word porneia in Greek. It refers to having sex with anyone who is not your spouse or should not be your spouse. And in this case, it's, it's incest. The man is, is sleeping with his father's wife. We don't know if the father is dead or if they're divorced. It doesn't matter. It's wrong either way. It's so wrong, in fact, that Paul tells us even the Gentiles don't put up with this behavior. Even the Greeks look down. They, they forbid incest. And that's saying something because when you study the history, you find out Greek society allowed and even encouraged just about every form of sex you can imagine. It, it was all okay. Even things like pedophilia were okay in Greek society and encouraged, but not incest. Not okay to sleep with your stepmom. They found this repugnant, especially because end of verse one, it doesn't just say he's sleeping with her, but he has literally in Greek, it's the idea he's cohabiting with her. He has moved in with her. He's living flagrantly this incestuous life. Now you look at this man and and what you see is willful, blatant, unrepentant sexual sin. He's not trying to turn from it. He's not feeling sorry for it. This is not a a heat of the moment bad decision that he made one night and woke up the next morning weeping over it and feeling horrible and running away. No, he he embraces it. He moves in with his stepmom. He's living in unrepentant incest. That's his sin. That's the first sin in the chapter. That's actually the smaller sin. That's the smaller sin. The chapter's really not about incest. It's about a much bigger sin. Second sin that Paul addresses, the much bigger sin, is the church's silence. The church's silence. They, they don't do anything about it. It would appear that the whole church knew about what this man was doing. He wasn't doing it in secret. He was not private about it. Everyone could see the sin, and yet they did nothing about it. They said nothing. They did nothing. They just completely ignored it. They swept it under the rug. You might as well put as the motto above the church in Corinth, live and let live. Because that's what they did. They did nothing about this sin. Now, we don't know why they ignored his sin. Was it some kind of theological error? Did they think that because of the gospel, you can now do anything you want? Maybe. More likely, they ignored it because the guy was probably rich. And in Corinth, if you were rich, you were a high-status person, and no one wanted to offend you. And so the church was afraid of offending this high-status rich man, and so they just were silent about his sin. They did absolutely nothing about it. And what Paul wants us to understand, the shocking thing in 1 Corinthians 5 is not incest, it's silence by the church. Paul's really clear. Their guilt is actually greater than his because they have been silent about this unrepentant sin in their midst. So Paul calls them out, calls out the man, calls out the church. Now what do they need to do about it? How do they address these two sins in their midst? Well, that's where Paul picks up verse three. Here's what Paul's gonna do about this serious problem going on in the church of Corinth. Verse three, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So Paul's solution to these two sins of of incest and silence, same solution to both, it's church discipline. Paul's solution is to bring church discipline upon this man. He says that he has judged this man. To judge, it means to sentence, to, to a punishment. Paul is ready to do what the leadership of this church won't do. He's the founding apostle. They'll do nothing about it. Well, he'll step in. He will render punishment upon this man. And what is the punishment? What comes in two parts. First part of of this punishment is removal from the church. Paul says that, actually repeats it multiple times. Remove the wicked man. Clean out the old leaven. Get rid of the man. He's no longer welcome to come to church on Sunday mornings. He's, He's excluded from the church body. Can't come to small group. Can't come to any function of the church. Cannot come on the property. He's not welcome here anymore. So he's removed from the church. That's the first part of church discipline. Second, he is completely isolated from other believers. Paul says, have no association with him. Don't even eat with him. The ancient world to eat with someone was to show friendship with that person. No, you you don't get to eat with them. You don't get to talk with them. You don't get to spend any time with them until he's willing to repent. The guy is kicked out of church and isolated from all believers until he is willing to turn from his sin and repent. That's actually what Paul has in mind with that really enigmatic phrase in verse 5 when he says, deliver him to Satan. Paul is talking about the reality that, that on earth, the kingdom of God is the church. We are the kingdom of God on earth. If you're not in the church, then you're in the only other kingdom on earth. What kingdom is that? Kingdom of Satan. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is the God of this world. If you're not part of this body, if you're not part of the church, God's kingdom of God on earth, then you are necessarily within the kingdom of Satan on earth. And so Paul's saying, kick the guy out of the church, cut him off from all believers so that he is marooned in the kingdom of Satan. It's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Pretty huge consequence that Paul lays out on this man. The first thing that we learn from that is that serious sin has serious consequences. Church discipline is the most serious consequence the church can bring upon a person who is walking in unrepentant sin. But every time you bring up the subject of church discipline, every time you get to it in the Bible, it brings up a lot of questions in people's minds because this is an incredibly hard and incredibly complex topic. Church discipline is difficult. It's painful. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's a pretty big deal. And it always brings up questions in people's mind. They, they want to wrestle through every possible circumstance, every possible situation. I can't cover all that this morning. I couldn't cover that in 10 sermons. And so what I want to tell you, I'm just going to cover the basics this morning. You will probably have questions after I go through this sermon. If you have questions about how our church does discipline, you should talk to an elder. 
and they would love to talk to you. I've been talking to them all week, preparing them for this. They know it's coming. They are the, the body, the authority that God has placed in authority over us as a church. They are the ones who exercise church discipline. So if you have questions about how church discipline works, they would love to talk to you. So if you come talk to me, I'll put you in touch with one of our elders if you have a question that I don't address this morning because I can't deal with all of it. I can just deal with the most frequent questions I get. So I'm going to cover three questions that, that always tend to come up whenever I talk about church discipline. The first question that people will often ask is when. When do we exercise church discipline? What situations would bring a person under the discipline of the church? Well, we exercise church discipline not just anytime we see sin. It's not, oh, I see sin, let's bring discipline. No, it's very, very rare that this happens. Church discipline, it falls under two really important limitations. Two important limitations. First, church discipline is only for professing Christians. Paul's really clear about that at the end of the passage. You see that? Really clear. For those outside the church, for those who do not claim to be Christians, we have no business judging them. We're called to love the world. If somebody out there who doesn't claim to be a Christian, if they're walking in unrepentant sin, you can continue contact with them. You can have lunch with them. You can welcome them in your home because you're called to love them and reach out to them and show the love of Christ to them. Okay, so none of this church discipline stuff applies to people outside the church. It's only inside the church for those who profess to be Christians. That's the first limitation. The second limitation, it's only for certain kinds of sin. It's not for any sin that a Christian would commit, only for certain kinds of sins. So what sins in particular? Well, any sex outside of what God recognizes as marriage. That's what that word porneia, immorality, in chapter 5, verse 1 is talking about. That would certainly include incest, but also adultery, fornication, homosexual behavior. Any of those kind of things would fall under this word porneia. So any sex outside of marriage, certainly incest like this guy. That's the first sin that Paul list but later in the chapter he begins to list other sins that would also bring church discipline upon an unrepentant christian he includes greed greed that leads a person to to steal or to extort money to trick people to swindle money out of people uh, that would bring church discipline uh, he also includes idolatry so worshiping anything that as is not god as if it was god uh, idolatry is a pretty broad one because ultimately, we've probably all been guilty at some point in our lives of idolatry, worshiping something that's not God, like money or fame. That's idolatry. That could bring church discipline. Uh, fourth, abuse. So a, a reviler, that means a violent person, either in his or her speech or behavior. So physical abuse or verbal abuse could bring church discipline. Uh, a drunkard, so someone who is addicted to a substance and not seeking help, that's key. So a drunkard is someone who just welcomes it, just wants to live in alcohol or drugs all the time. So that's what Paul lists in this passage, but in other passages we learn a few more sins that could qualify for church discipline. Uh, heretical teaching, so you're teaching something that is not true in the church, that could bring church discipline. Divisiveness, you're trying to split the church, that would bring church discipline. And finally, unwillingness to work. If you're not willing to provide for your family, that could bring church discipline. Yeah, but here's the key. Here's what you gotta understand. None of these sins qualify for church discipline unless the believer is unwilling to repent. That's the key. He's gotta be unwilling to repent. If he repents, then church discipline doesn't happen. Because here's the deal, we are all sinners, we all sin, sometimes in serious ways. The key is that when you sin, you confess it. 
You confess it and you turn away from that sin. You confess it to God. You confess it to another believer. You do what you have to to turn away from that sin. Then church discipline never happens. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 5, this guy would have never come under church discipline if he simply would have moved out of his stepmom's house. If he would have given up the relationship, repented of it, confessed it, turned away from it, then the church would have stepped in to restore and to heal. The problem is not incest, it's that he is unwilling to repent. When a person who calls himself a Christian gives into sin and is unwilling to repent of it, then and only then is it time for church discipline to begin. Okay, so what does church discipline look like? How does the process work? How do we do church discipline here at Grace Bible Church? Well, Paul doesn't give us a lot of guidance. He gives us principles in this chapter, but by the time we meet the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, he's already way down the road. We, we pick it up at the end of the process of church discipline. So we have to read other passages to, to find out what the whole process looks like. When, when you see a, a person who calls themselves a Christian walking in unrepentant sin, what do you do? We've got to look at other passages of Scripture. And what we learn is that church discipline, in summary, church discipline is a five-step process that God, and particularly Jesus, lays out for us. Five steps where each step gets more painful than the step before. So five steps that get more painful as they go, but it's a five-step process that you can abort at any time if you will simply repent. You don't have to go all the way to step five. The moment you confess your sin and turn away from it, you're done with church discipline. You move on to restoration. So so church discipline reminds me of a a time when I was about eight years old, and I was fighting with my younger brother, because that's what brothers do, and my mom told me to stop, and I ignored her. And so then she warned me, if I, keep, if I keep fighting with my brother, she's going to spank me, and I ignore her again. And so she grabs hold of me, and with her hand, she gives me a spanking on my bottom, but I'm like eight years old, and I'm wearing pants, and so it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. So as my, a smart eight-year-old, what do I do when mom spanks me and it doesn't hurt? I laughed. I laughed at her. Up to that point in my life, that was the worst decision I had ever made. <laughs> Horrible decision, because what did it do? It triggered the final phase of discipline in the Jennings household. My mom picked up the phone, and she called my dad. And when my dad got home, he spanked me, but not with his hand, pulled off the belt, and I felt that. (laughs) The sad thing is, is I could have avoided all that pain if I simply would have turned from my sin earlier in the process. I would have just stopped fighting with my brother when my mom warned me. If I would have just stopped fighting when she spanked me and not laughed at her then I would have avoided the pain. That's how church discipline works. Five steps that grow worse, but you can stop them at any moment if you will simply repent of your sin. Okay, so let's see this process. Here's what the Bible lays out for us. First step in church discipline, you examine yourself. So if you see a believer sinning before you go talk to them about that sin, you look at your own life. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. You've got to look at your own life first. Am I walking in sin? Is there something that I need to confess, some sin that I need to turn away from? You've got to get your own house in order before you go address somebody else. As Jesus says, you've got to take the plank out of your own eye before you can see to take the speck out of your brother's. So you look at your own life, your actions, your motives, you address that first. Now once you've looked at your own life, once you've examined yourself prayerfully, then you move on to step number two, you confront the sinner in private. 
Jesus says in Matthew 18, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, have won your brother. You go to him in private. What that means is you don't talk to anybody else. No one else needs to know about any of this. You go alone in private to your brother or your sister and you confront the sin. You do it gently. Remember, you do it graciously. You do it humbly. You listen to their story because maybe the sin never happened. Maybe you don't have all the facts and it's not what you think it is. So you go graciously and you go humbly in private to that person. Now, there is uh, an exception to this. If, If you see a believer sinning who it would not be appropriate for you to confront, Maybe you're a woman in a married relationship. It's a man that you see. You can't go talk to them alone. If you are not able to go talk to them alone, then you can go talk to one pastor or one elder and share what you have seen and we'll take it from there. That's the only exception. If you can speak to that person in private, then you must go in private graciously and humbly and confront the sin. Now, Lord willing, they'll listen. Lord willing, they'll confess their sin, they'll turn from it, and then church discipline is done. You never get past step two. You're done. No one else ever needs to know about that sin. You help the person begin to walk with the Lord again, to restore them, to heal them. We're done with that. You've you've won your brother. But if they won't listen, if they won't repent, then you move on. Step three, you bring help. Jesus says in Matthew 18, The next verse, verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So you go get one or two more believers who have some connection to this person. They have seen the sin or they have a relationship and you bring that person with you to confront the the unrepentant believer. Now, let's be real clear. This is not permission to gossip. You don't go tell five people. You don't go spread it around. You go tell one or two people who will be confidential. They will not share it with anyone else. That's absolutely essential. There'll be a vault. They'll protect this information and they will go with you to confront. If they're not gonna go with you, they don't need to know. If they're not part of the solution, then they have no business knowing this information. So you'll get one or two more who will go with you to confront the sinning believer and if he listens, then you're done. You begin to work healing and restoration in his life. Church discipline ends, but... If you won't listen, then you move to step four. Step four, you take it to a pastor or an elder. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the leadership of the church. So if if they have not listened to you or, or to the witnesses that you brought with you, they're still walking in unrepentant sin, then you come tell one pastor or one elder and we'll take it from here. You're done. You don't need to say anything more about it. You just pray for the person. That's all you do. The elder board will take it from there. So uh, what the elder board will do is send one or two elders to meet with that person, to gather the facts, and to encourage them to turn from sin. If they will not listen to the elder, then it will be brought back to the elder board, and the elder board will take it up to the final step. Step five, you remove and isolate the unrepentant sinner. Remove from the church and isolate them. This is what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5. So we're already at step five. So you remove them from the membership of the church. You isolate them. What that would look like here at Grace Bible Church is that the elder board would publicly declare that this believer, this professing Christian, is walking in sin and has been removed from the membership of the church. He or she's no longer welcome here on Sunday morning or at small groups or at any event, not allowed on the property at all until they're willing to repent. And then the elder board will tell us we need to cut off contact with them. No, no having lunch, no talking on the phone, no inviting them over to your house, no hanging out with them until they're willing to repent. Now, what if they're in your family? What if you work with them? Then it gets complicated. 
and you need to talk to an elder. So it, it does get sticky. If, if you have that kind of situation, you talk to an elder and they'll coach you through it because you can't cut that person off. You have to continue to have some kind of relationship with them. So they'll coach you. But if they're not in your family, if you don't work with them, if you don't live with them, then you cut them off. You, you remove you, yourself from association with that person. Now, now the public announcement, it might be on a Sunday morning if we're talking about somebody high up in leadership or it might just be at a business meeting or even just a home church gathering if it's someone who's not real involved. The elders are wise in how they handle that. But if it gets up to step five, then the church steps in, removes the person from membership, and isolates them. Hopefully the person jumps off the process way before step five because it gets painful for everybody if it gets up to step five. So that's what church discipline looks like. That's how the process works here at Grace Bible Church. And that leads us to the third and probably most important question. Maybe you're asking yourself now, uh, why? Why do we exercise church discipline? Because it sounds awful. It sounds painful. It sounds offensive. It sounds unpleasant. If you're a visitor just checking our church out for the first time, and I'm sorry that I don't have any choice in how the schedule works itself out, and, and we can't skip passages just because they're painful. Uh, we don't usually talk about subjects like this, but what we have to when, when the text goes there, and, and I want you to know, church discipline, it's, it's very rare at Grace Bible Church, but when it happens, it happens for a good reason. Church discipline is not because we're mean. It's not because we're judgmental and offensive people. It's because it's good. It's good, first of all, for us as a church. We as a church, we need church discipline. Why? To protect us, to protect our holiness so that we can walk with the Lord. Verse six, you may have noticed, Paul uses the metaphor of of leavened dough, of yeast. The idea being you can take a whole big batch of dough and sprinkle in just a little bit of yeast and what happens? The whole lump of dough, it all leavens, it all rises. A little bit of dough mixed in affects the whole batch. That became a metaphor in the ancient world that that makes a lot of sense. That's how sin spreads in a church. A little bit of sin. One person who sins and you don't address it, that sin will grow. That sin will spread. Because as a church, as a, as a body, as a family, if we look around and we see that the church doesn't care about sin going on over here, then that emboldens temptation in each of us. When sin comes knocking, then we think, well, it was no big deal when he did this, so why don't I do that? That's what happens when a church will not address sin. It grows. Parents, you have all seen this when you go on vacation with young kids. You go on vacation, and because it's vacation, you do not want to enforce the rules. You don't want to punish because you're having fun. It's on vacation. That works for about 24 to 48 hours. And then after a day or two, even the youngest kids add two and two together and realize I'm not getting in trouble for anything. So I can do absolutely anything I want. And before long, you got little kids who are climbing on furniture, throwing food and running naked in front of the relatives. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because you taught them that, that sin, that disobedience has no consequences. That's what happens to churches that will not exercise church discipline. The church as a whole looks around and sees sin's not a big deal in this place. And so it inflames and emboldens temptation in each and every heart. We must practice church discipline to protect our holiness as the body of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Church discipline is fearful. It's awful. It's ugly. It's painful. It's meant to be that way. 
So that when we see it, it instills fear in us. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to put my family through that. I don't want to put my friends in my church through that. It's meant to put fear in us so that we will walk in holiness. So it protects our holiness. That's the first thing it does for the church. The second, it protects our witness to the world. Verse one is so incredibly sad. Here is this man who is doing something that the unbelieving world finds offensive and the church does nothing about it. Why would anyone want to go to a church that promotes and excuses incest? We've all seen the damage that hypocrisy does to a church. When a church is unwilling to deal with immorality, unwilling to deal with racism, man, it destroys the witness of Jesus Christ in that community. No one wants to go to a church like that. Church discipline protects our holiness and it protects our, our witness to the world. So the first reason we practice church discipline is to protect us, our family, Grace Bible Church. We need discipline. But it's not just for us. Church discipline isn't just for the church. It's also for the good of the sinner. Now we've got to look at that really complicated, hard phrase. Paul turns the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. What does that mean? Well, most scholars agree, whatever it means, it's about the man. The sinning man being turned over to Satan, his flesh will be destroyed and his spirit will be saved. But what, what does that mean? Well, you've got to define your words really carefully. What does the word flesh mean? His flesh. Well, uh, it could mean his body. So the idea being that Paul will hand him over to Satan and Satan will kill him, put him to death. That does happen. That's true. Satan does have the power of death, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2. But I don't think that fits here because Paul looks at the destruction of his flesh as a redemptive thing, as a good thing, and death is never good in the Bible. So I think that there's a better option. I don't think it's his physical, but I think flesh is his fleshly lusts, his desires, his, his carnal desires with this woman. Paul uses the word flesh like that often, right? Here in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, he described these really immature Christians in Corinth as men of flesh. You are men and women who are following the desires of your flesh wherever they go. Paul's point is he's turning this man over to Satan so that the desires of his sinful flesh can be destroyed. So that Satan can bring about the end of his sinful desires. And that may strike you as odd. How could Satan bring the end of his sinful desires? Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It's actually pretty cool in the Bible. Lots of examples where Satan is actually the unwitting servant of God. Satan does something that is meant for evil. And yet God, because he is all-powerful and all-wise, he uses Satan's attack to bring about good for God's people. That's exactly what Paul has in mind here. Satan wants to destroy this man, but God is going to use Satan's attack, Satan's destruction in his life to put an end to his sinful desires. Very practically what's going to happen, this man's going to be totally cut off. There were no other churches in Corinth, so he's going to have no believers who will welcome him into their home, no church to attend. He's going to be totally isolated in the kingdom of Satan. His life is going to begin to fall apart. He's going to feel lonely and depressed and really down, and as his life begins to fall apart, finally he will wake up and realize that his sin is foolish and he'll finally be willing to turn from it. That's what Paul has in mind. Satan is often the unwilling ally in God's plan for us. Paul talks about that, 1 Timothy 1.20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Satan can actually teach you. He doesn't want to. He wants to destroy you. But your God is big enough and good enough that he can use Satan's attacks to grow you and to teach you. So that's what Paul has in mind, that, his, that this man's sinful desires will be destroyed by the attacks of Satan. The result will be that the man's spirit will be saved. But what does that mean? 
But you've got to define the word saved. A lot of people assume it means from hell. Maybe you have a man who was a believer, was saved, he was a Christian, but because of this horrible sin in his life, he's lost his salvation. Or maybe you have a guy who was never a Christian to begin with. He was fooling you. He was fooling himself. He just called himself a Christian. But turning him over to Satan will bring him to the point of finally believing the gospel. So what, if, if this is right, then what Paul's saying is that repentance of sin, turning away from sin, will save this guy from hell. Just one problem with that view. It contradicts the clear teaching of the whole Bible. That, that view can't be right. Because the Bible is very clear. Salvation from hell is not something that you earn through good behavior. You don't earn it by turning away from sin. There's only one thing you have to do to be saved from hell. You believe. You believe the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. You don't have to clean up your life to get eternal life. You don't have to turn away from sin. You just believe. You just accept the gospel. So this cannot be salvation from hell. It can be. A better option is that this is deliverance from further sin and discipline. See, that word save, when you see it in Greek, it doesn't mean heaven. Save just means to rescue, or deliver from, from something that's bad. So what is bad in this guy's life? Sin and church discipline. And so Paul's saying this guy can deliver himself from further sin and further discipline if he'll simply repent. The moment you repent, that sin comes to an end and church discipline comes to an end. That's the salvation Paul's talking about. Now, that's a lot of theology. The reason to walk you through that theology is, is hopefully to prove to you the reason that we exercise church discipline on sinning believers is for their good. It's because we love them. I just want you guys to think about that for a moment. I want you to understand that, that to love someone means that you confront them. When they are walking in unrepentant sin, you confront that sin in their life. That's the loving thing to do. Let's just make it really practical. If you, any of you ever see me walk into a strip club, if you love me, you will confront me about that sin. To say, well, live and let live. That's not love to me. How is that loving to my wife? How's that loving to my kids? How's that loving to my church? To love is to confront when we see a believer walking in sin. James puts it this way at the end of his book. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you leave me walking in sin, eventually sin kills you. Eventually sin will end in a premature grave. But if you turn me from my sin, you save my soul from death and you cover over a multitude of sins. I love that line. The idea is if you turn a sinning believer from his sin, he gets a new start in life. There can be healing for him and for his family and for everyone he's affected. You cover over the effect of those sins by confronting him. To love is to confront. Saying live and let live. Saying that it's nobody else's business. That's not love, that's hatred. To love is to confront believers who are walking in sin. That's why we do it. Not because we're mean. Not because we're judgmental. But because we love. We love one another. And we practice that love by confronting each other when we see sin. Now, what do you do with this passage? Most of you aren't in the middle of a church discipline situation right now, I hope. And most of you aren't elders. You're not called to exercise church discipline for the church. So what does this passage mean for you today? How do you apply it to your life today? Well, two things that I would encourage you. First, this passage is teaching us that we must be accountable. That's the first application from this passage. You must live an accountable life. 
This world is constantly telling you that your personal beliefs and private behavior ain't no one else's business. That's a lie. If you're a follower of Christ, your personal beliefs and private business is the business of the church because we are brothers and sisters and we look out for each other. We call each other out on sin because even sin that's done in private affects the entire body of Christ. Like leaven and dough, it affects us all. And so we just need to have this moment where we just each individually recognize if you are a follower of Christ, you need to know this, that there is absolutely no place for private, secret sin in your life. You just gotta believe that as true. There is no excuse for private sin in your life. There is no secret sin if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are accountable in every area of life. You're accountable to one another and you are accountable to the leadership that God has placed over our church, which is the board of elders. And just so you know, I'm not one of them. I'm a pastor, I'm not an elder. And so I'm I'm not speaking to you as one in authority over you. I'm speaking to you as your brother who, like you, is under the authority of the board of elders that Jesus Christ has placed over this church. We are accountable to them in every area of life. Our accountability to one another and board of elders, it extends beyond these walls. It covers everything you do at school, everything you do at work, everything you do in, in your house, everything you do in your bedroom. You are accountable to one another and to the board of elders that God has placed over us because we are called to live in accountability and that accountability is good for us. It protects us from sin. It turns us away from the darkness and destruction that sin wants to ravage in our lives. And so I challenge you and encourage you to embrace that accountability. I encourage you, when when you sin, confess your sin to other believers. Be open about it. Have an accountability partner, a believer of the same gender who is mature that you confess your sins to on a regular basis. I have two accountability partners, two guys I meet with every single week. There are absolutely no excuses, no exceptions. I I must meet with them every week to confess my sins. That's non-negotiable because I must live in accountability as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you will do that, if you will practice accountability, confessing your sins to an accountability partner, then it will never reach the level of needing church discipline. You're dealing with it quickly on a regular basis. You're addressing that sin. Discipline's not gonna come on you from the church. You need to embrace and practice accountability. Every believer should be confessing their sins regularly to a mature believer of the same gender. We must walk in accountability. No matter what this world tells us, we are accountable. Embrace that. Live in accountability. That's my first encouragement. Second, hold one another accountable. When you see another believer here at Grace Bible Church who is walking in unrepentant sin, do not remain silent about that. If you remain silent, then you are as guilty as a man committing incest in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's really guilty. You can't remain silent about it. Remember the process. You First, you need to examine your own life. Look at your own obedience, your own behavior, your own motives. But if you see something that is clearly sinful in the life of another believer and they're not dealing with it, then at some point you need to courageously go confront that sin. Now you do it graciously, you do it humbly because maybe you don't have all the facts and it's not a sin to begin with. You need to address it carefully. But you must speak. Don't remain silent. That makes you as guilty as them. You need to be willing to privately go confront your brother or sister, if they're walking in unrepentant sin. And if they won't listen to you, then you take it up a notch. You take a witness. Won't listen, you take it to an elder. 
God has called us to speak into each other's lives. We are responsible for one another. (laughs) You are your brother's keeper, to put it in Old Testament language. You are responsible to speak into the lives of other believers when you see sin. Again, you do it privately, you do it graciously, you do it humbly, but we must be courageous to challenge one another, to call out sin, because that is love. To confront is to love that other believer. So let us pray for God's courage and boldness to speak grace and truth into one another's lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to belong to this family. We thank you that you have welcomed us to this place, that you have made us your sons and daughters and brought us into your family of the church. Lord, we come into the church struggling with sin. We we all have sin. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in us to help us to be soft before you, to help us to confess our sins to you and to one another. I pray for any person in this room, any believer here who is harboring some secret sin that they're not willing to turn from, that they've held on to, they've not been willing to give it up, I pray, Lord, that you would convict them right now. I pray that your spirit would speak in their lives, that you would break them of that sin, that you would turn them away from it before it's too late. We pray that you would help each of us to walk in obedience and holiness, and when we blow it, that we would be quick to confess our sins to one another. We pray, Father, that you would protect our church, that you would protect our holiness, that you would protect our witness to this world. We pray that you would grow us in obedience and in righteousness so that when this town looks at Grace Bible Church, they would see the love and righteousness of Jesus Christ here in this place. That they would see a people walking in purity and love and hope and joy and that they would be drawn in so that they would be drawn to Jesus into the gospel. We pray, Father, that you would do whatever it takes in our lives to help us to grow in obedience and righteousness. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the elders, for the men that you have placed in authority over us. We pray for them that you would help them to walk with you, that you would bless them and keep them. Thank you for this place. Thank you most of all for your son who has made it possible for us to be part of your family. In his name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week for 1 Corinthians 6.